Welcome to another episode of How to Make It in Africa. This is your host, Fadi Jawi. Today's guest left a successful corporate career to disrupt the agricultural ecosystem in Kenya, building the supply chain from scratch. Now, let's get the show started, and I hope you enjoy listening. Hi, everyone. Our guest today is Peter Njonjo. Peter is co-founder and CEO of Twiga Foods. The company aggregates informal retail demand and organizes an efficient supply chain for fresh and dry goods through a tech-enabled B2B platform. Prior to that, Peter spent 21 years with the Coca-Cola company. He was president of their West and Central Africa business, covering 33 countries and based in Lagos. He was also president of the American Chamber of Commerce in Kenya and director of the American Business Council in Nigeria. A native of Kenya, he has been voted among the top 100 young leaders in Africa by Forbes Afrique and top 40 under 40 by the Business Daily in Kenya. Peter holds an MBA and BSc from the United States International University in Kenya and an executive leadership program from Harvard Business School. Peter, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you so much, uh, Fardel, and uh, it's a pleasure to be on your show. Excellent, excellent. I cannot wait for our conversation. So let's uh, start from the very beginning, and I'll start with an interesting anecdote that I found out about while researching your company, and I believe it was a pivotal moment. Tell us about the time when you and your co-founder decided to sell bananas from Kenya in Dubai. No, thank you so much, Fidel. I think for many agri-based companies on the continent, everybody thinks about the export opportunity. And that's essentially where we started. And we felt that, you know what, there's a huge world out there when it comes to exports. And when we looked at the banana market globally, we felt that there was essentially an opportunity for us to cut a niche for ourselves and start supplying into the market. So we headed out to Dubai and we felt that uh, it was going to be kind of fairly straightforward, going there, pitch, and uh, walk away with, uh, with a huge order. And that's exactly what happened. So we went and actually uh, pitched to a larger exporter or importer of bananas in Dubai. You know, we left there and what they told us is, look, you know, you guys are here at the right time. And if you can give us one container of good bananas, we're going to give you an order of 50 containers a month. And, and of course, that for us was very, very exciting. So we came back to Nairobi, all excited. And we thought we're just going to put a large sign outside saying, you know, we're buying bananas and we'd start filling up the containers. The realization of uh, the problems that plague agriculture in Africa started hitting us. We realized that there's no traceability. People don't know the varieties that they grow, very little record keeping, and there was really no traceability. It soon dawned on us that uh, we will not be able to export a single banana. And that's when we started looking at the Kenyan opportunity to figure out, you know, we've spent all this time and energy trying to export bananas, you know, how about we sell some bananas locally? And that's what really helped us pivot our model to focusing on the local market. Interesting. So, so essentially, there's also international standards, I assume, right, when you come to export. And so these are one of the things that you had to, to figure out. But then at the same time, you realize that there is a demand in Kenya in the first place. So, so there's no need to, to think of exports first, but to focus internally. 
Yeah, because if you look at uh, exporting globally, there needs to be proper traceability, proper record keeping from an agronomy standpoint, and all those did not exist. Yeah. So even from a, a phytosanitary standpoint, we would not be able to export. So starting from that point, the whole idea then was, can we identify inefficiencies locally and then see whether that would be a good opportunity for us to then start? And that's when we kind of started looking at the banana market locally, the extent of a fragmentation of the value chains, the inefficiency of production, and just the whole inefficiency of the food sector, where, you know, today, consumers across Africa are spending about 50% of their disposable income on food. Mm. Context, that's what consumers in the U.S. were spending in the 1870s. Wow. Today, that number is 10%. So, and that explains why the Western economies are very vibrant because 90% of disposable income is going to saving in other sectors. In Africa, once you have 50% going into food, then the rest is going into very, very basic things, you know, health, transportation, and uh, education, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. Going back to you now, how easy was it for you to move from the beverages business to agriculture and to this new endeavor? I mean, these are completely different beasts, no? Yes, so so having spent 21 years with uh, the Coca-Cola company, I was doing very, very well uh, within the company. I was president for Western Central Africa, And I had a very, very promising career path laid out ahead of me in the company. And sometime early last year, that was 2019, I was more or less faced with a crossroad. So on one path, I could continue with the Coca-Cola company and see where that road led me. And, Mm -hmm. And then essentially, that's something I knew very well. But on the other hand, is this company I started six years ago, where my co-founder at the time was starting to not enjoy his role because the company had grown. It was no longer the little entrepreneurship experiment that we had. And now we had, you know, people relying on the business. We had shareholders, we had different stakeholders, and that really wasn't his cup of tea. If I stayed on with the Coca-Cola company, I would lose out on Twigger or I would lose Twigger the company because then now it would not have the right level of leadership to take it to its next level of growth. So so it was a tough choice and I made a choice to go with Trigger because it's something that also spoke to my values and who I wanted to be and the legacy I wanted to leave in my life. So this is like the deep personal motivation you had to to move on. Because I was going to ask you, you know, how can you just leave a comfortable career, as you said, of 21 years and just, you know, jump off the bandwagon and get into entrepreneurship. Was there like a family history of entrepreneurship as well, or not at all? Why are you the first one, essentially? Not per se. So if I look at my parents, they got into entrepreneurship, but very late. They, they had more or less had a very successful uh, professional journey, similar to what I had. So I think for me, what I always knew is that uh, I wanted to be a creator. I wanted to build new things. Mm-hmm. I had the opportunity to do that, and I knew that it was a risk that I was taking. So one of the things I did was to then have a chat with my wife, who's been very, very supportive through this journey, and more or less just be very, very open to then say, hey, by the way, this is a very, very exciting path that we're taking, but there's also risk associated with it. 
And if we appreciate the risk associated with it, I think we will go in with both our eyes open. And, mm. and if we do that, then uh, I think then we could build something very, very special. And, and the other thing also that I would say is that, you know, when you start a venture and you're not fully committed to it, there's always that, that piece at the back of your mind that there's really no, it's these, these options, you know. But in this instance, what I say is, look, what can, how much can I motivate myself if I were to remove that net? If I knew that I don't have any other safety net apart from making this thing work, then how hard am I willing to push myself? How hard am I willing to push the boundaries? And that starts creating a very different level of motivation that we did not have before that. Um, this is a bit like Jeff Bezos from Amazon, who said, you know, he imagines himself at the age of 80 and then looks back and uh, wonders if he regrets or if he would have regretted anything. And so that's what he would go for. So I guess this is a bit similar to your, uh, to your way of thinking. If I looked at it back, maybe I went to Coke, I stayed with Coca-Cola, went to North America, had a, had a brilliant career. Yeah. If I look back and I saw that, you know, a company like Twigger did not flourish and we did not have the impact that we intend, we set out to have as a business, I will feel that I would not have lived to my true potential. Yeah, for sure. And I think that for me is what then becomes a very strong motivation for everything that I do every day. Yeah, for sure. But, but then how, where, where is the name uh, Twiga coming from in the first place? Twiga means giraffe in Swahili. Ah, okay. So, very, uh, very simple. Very, very simple. And, and, and actually, uh, it, it, there wasn't any research or any thoughtful process around it. My co-founder is, is, is American. His name is Grant. Initially, when we started out the company, the company was called Neo Kenya, which was a bit of a mouthful. Mm-hmm. And Grant said, you know what, how about we use a giraffe as a, as a, as a logo for the business? And essentially, the company was called Twigger Fruits, or the brand was called Twigger Fruits, mm. because we only dealt with fruits. It changed to Twigger Foods, because we started dealing with foods uh, other than uh, fruits. And now we just, uh, we just Twigger.com, where we're trying now to sell everything there is in grocery and fresh. So soon it will be called Twigger Everything, a bit like Amazon then. <laughs> yeah, well, we just call it Twigger.com, and we're happy with that, because exactly. then now it Exactly. So, so then, you know, tell us a bit more about the company as it is today, you know, how it, you know, what it does, how it's structured. So today we see ourselves more of a, a B2B e-commerce company. And the reason why we're B2B is because we feel that that's where there's a single biggest opportunity to then create transformation as far as retail is concerned on the continent. So just to give you an example, if you look at the Western uh, markets, you can take the top 15 retailers control maybe about 80% of retail. If you look at Nairobi, maybe about 6 million people, there's about 180,000 retailers. Hmm. So when you think about the Western type of uh, retail structure, it then lends itself to a lot of efficiency and low pricing. But if you look at the fragmentation that you have on the African continent, because of the fragmentation of retail due to the informality, mm. the, the inefficiency is so high 
So we feel that having a B2B model that is an e-commerce model, then that then has the greatest impact in terms of bringing efficiency into retail. And that's essentially what makes business like ourselves exist. So, so that's what we do. We have two big uh, divisions within the business. The first is the fresh, the fresh division, which is essentially fresh fruit and vegetables. That's where we started. That's our heritage. Mm-hmm. And now we've added grocery. So we're starting to look at everything else that the informal retail needs in terms of meeting its, uh, its requirements. Because we want to be the one-stop shop for informal retail. So that's how we're structured as a business today. We've grown to about a thousand uh, employees. Half of that is uh, permanent. The other half is uh, contracts, contractual or casual. We have about 60,000 customers in our system. We've now started expanding across the whole country. Of course, with COVID, that slowed down our international expansion. So yep. we've really focused on expanding within Kenya. By the end of uh, February next year, we will be in eight Kenyan cities in total. And that should essentially give us a lead position in terms of uh, being a B2B e-commerce player. And that essentially should then start driving our international expansion. So that's essentially who we are today and how we're structured. But I think it's important to emphasize as well that technology is a big part of your business. And, and hence my, my following up question, which is, what has been your experience of convincing suppliers and retailers to change their habits and move to digital? Has there been a lot of resistance there? So I just want to give you an example, and this is from last week, which mm-hmm. I think should give you an idea of maybe the type of transformation that we're driving. We launched in this new city called Kisumu, which is in the western part of Kenya. Within Kisumu, let's say the core urban Kisumu is about 2,000 retailers, right? Yep. Within the first 60 hours of operation, say, say, say 72 hours of operation, about three days. Basically, we had 10% of those customers already converted to Twigger and using the app. Wow. So the thing is that the value proposition that we give to the retailers is yes, it's a new way of working, but think about the convenience. You sit down in your shop, you key in whatever it is that you want, you can see the picture, you select that, and the very next day it comes to you. And for many retailers out there, it's like magic. You guys who actually deliver the goods all the way to the vendors, correct? Yes, we we do the same. So, because we need to control the experience. So when you think about it, the friction to commerce that you remove using technology makes the conversion that much easier. And, and, and I think the key other key thing, of course, is price. Because of the efficiency that we generate, we then pass on the benefits of price to the retail. So, and because of that, there's a very strong incentive for the retailers to then come on board and to keep on ordering. Having launched last week, I now can see customers in the database who are ordering daily from us. That, that quickly, you know, so uh, it is being adopted very quickly. So all that, you know, potential counter argument of uh, resistance is completely gone in this case. And Twiga, I guess, is uh, proof of it. 
especially, you know, we wonder that in Africa, there's a low penetration of uh, internet, low penetration of uh, telecom infrastructure, but it doesn't seem that it's affecting the, the business, or is it? Now, the thing is that the other, the other misconception that is there is that there's a low penetration of telecom infrastructure. So when I look at a, a market like Kenya, the whole country is 4G. I see. And, and because the telecom, ha, the telco companies have older 3G, 2G infrastructure, which is very expensive to run, Mm. What they're not doing is providing incentives through 4G-enabled handsets to transition people away from 2G, 3G to 4G. So now, for example, in Kenya, the leading telecom company, Safaricom, has an offer where as, a, as somebody on a 2G or 3G uh, device, you can get a 4G device for the price of 20 US cents a day. Wow. That's, that's so, very cheap. I mean, exactly. So, so because of that, you will have most of the market starting to transition. And of course, if everybody has a 4G enabled device on their hands, that's a huge opportunity for companies like ourselves. Mm, for sure. Because now, in the new city that we just launched uh, last week, 90% of the uh, customers we surveyed, potential customers we surveyed, had 4G enabled handsets. That's the telecom side. I mean, this is the internet infrastructure side. But is there an issue from the other, you know, more physical infrastructure? Because that's, that's a big issue in, in Africa more generally. Is that challenging your business operations? I mean, logistically or not at all? Well, I think the key thing is that we focus on urban areas. So in terms of our distribution. And of course, you know, we know that... Uh, Africa, the, the rate of urbanization is very high. That's about 4.2%. That's like 2x Asia, which is sitting at about 2.2. Mm. Now, if the rate of urbanization is growing much, much faster than uh, infrastructure, then uh, the product of that is traffic. Yeah. And uh, being out here in Africa, you know, that's like part of our lives. Of course, of course. Uh, so, so the thing is that now, what we are then now doing is leveraging technology to really start optimizing our logistics to manage the traffic situation. So right now, if I look at some of the tools that we've built, you know, our first case of uh, machine learning is, is on our logistics optimization. Where now we're able to traffic, we're able to look at the state of the roads, the clustering of the orders that we're receiving from customers, the weight, the volume of those orders, and then really optimizing our logistics in how we can achieve the lowest cost of operation. And because of that and, and leveraging technology, then that starts helping you overcome some of these more traditional challenges. Yeah, but I want to emphasize as well that you are using technology, you are using platform connecting the two sides of the market, but you are not just an Uber uh, for agriculture. I mean, your, your hands are much dirtier into the, the business and in the supply chain? Because from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you're also involved in, in harvesting, you're involved in storage and delivering. Yeah, the, the thing is that, you see, one of the things that you're, you're doing in this type of environment is sometimes, and, and this is a challenge 
for companies in, uh, in Africa. As an entrepreneur, you have a dual challenge mm. as, as opposed to other markets. The dual challenge here is you need to build the intellectual property to commercialize the innovation or solve the problem that you set out to solve while at the same time, you need to create an ecosystem that will support your business yeah. because that ecosystem yeah. does not exist. Yeah. So, for example, we did not have commercial farmers focused on the local market. Everything was smallholder farmer driven. Today, we have about 14,000 acres of contracted land to trigger, and that number will get to 20,000 acres end of the year. This is commercial farmers that were not there before or commercial farmers who were not even farming for the local market before. That's an ecosystem we had to build to support our fresh business. Interesting. Interesting. You're literally, you know, creating parts of the ecosystem from scratch. You have to. When we started out, we couldn't lease assets to support our logistics. We started by buying trucks. Half of our trucks today are company-owned trucks. Now, because we've hit a certain threshold, we're able to leverage logistics marketplaces to access logistics assets to support our last mile distribution or our inbound logistics. So again, these are things that we go developing. Now, of course, as we start exp expanding into other markets, we don't need to build that from scratch because mm. we've built partnerships, we've built a name for ourselves and we've built the ecosystem. Yeah. So basically now, now that you have, you know, the infrastructure, you, you, you built as well the supply chain, you can add over it extra layers of other products and other markets, correct? Exactly. And that's why we started moving from fresh produce into the broader grocery range, because your vehicle is going to the same customer. And the same customer is asking, you know, if you're going to bring me this, why not bring me this and this and this and mm. this? Yeah. And the list keeps on growing and you're like, okay, who are we kidding? Let's just provide everything. Yeah, 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 for sure. I understand. So I, I want to talk a bit more about you now and, and your role in the context of a fast-growing company. So the typical image of the entrepreneur that we have is this 20-something tech graduates with a hoodie, you know, starting from a garage. But the average entrepreneur is, in fact, above their 30s with corporate experience. So how has your experience at a firm like Coca-Cola served you, if at all, in creating and building Twiga? I would say that, and I will give you a couple of facets. The first thing was around access to capital. Mm. So when we, started to, when we started Twiga six years ago, I basically financed the whole operation. Wow. And actually to the point where my wife and I, we sold our matrimonial home to finance the business. Now that's a sacrifice. So, so the key thing is that because we really believed in the idea, but you see the thing is that because I already had a career in the company I, with Coca-Cola, I had some assets I had accumulated that I could dispose to finance the business. Mm. One of the biggest challenges that you have for entrepreneurs in Africa is startup capital. The second thing that I would say is, uh, was uh, critical for me was understanding how to manage large teams and understanding okay. to reduce what I call the strategic divergence of strategy and operations. That means that as the organization grows, 
is what you're saying in the boardroom yeah. what the company is actually doing on the streets and how do you then reduce that dichotomy over time and that comes from being able to manage large teams being able to manage processes systems that allow you to reduce that uh, dichotomy between strategy and operations so a related a related question is what does a typical workday of a growth startup ceo look like really given what you were just telling me right now so the first thing is that my day starts at 7 uh, 7 o'clock that's my first meeting So the thing is that the 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 team starts at 6:30 where they review the performance of fresh the day before 7 to 7:30 I review the the performance of uh, grocery the day before together with fresh between uh, 7:30 and 8:30 I review any high impact projects that we have running they're not more than two so each project half an hour and it's a skip level session where the teams the teams on the ground and myself and all the direct reports are on the call and uh, we're able to quickly review the performance it's rapid fire half of the half an hour and then from there i basically then get into uh, the rest of the sessions that we have every week i have a one on one with all my direct reports it's not about what i want to get out of that meeting because it's not a performance session yeah but I want to support them. So what I tell them is I'm giving you an hour of my time. What do you want with this one hour? We do that every week. Twice a week I spend time with customers in the market. I want to understand, you know, why did you make the decision that you made? Why are you why are you buying this product and not this? And I get to spend uh, that whole two days with the team and sometimes I actually ride on a sales truck with the sales people. just to kind of get to understand what are the challenges that they're facing and how are the decisions that we're making impacting how they're working on the ground and i try to do that as often as i can because as a company grows the risk of being detached from reality is very high yeah yeah i mean the bigger it gets because you're you're now 1000 people as you just said and that's just yeah. in a few years in 6 years so it's easy to to become detached and and start living in this ivory tower Exactly. And the thing is that we we double the business in revenue every 4 to 5 months. So when when you're growing at that pace, you really need to stay connected to what's happening uh, on the ground, what's happening with customers. And that allows us to then make very very relevant decisions. I mean, tomorrow I'm in the market and I'm joining the sales team for a 4 a.m. sales run because some of our customers open that early. and i want to see some of the challenges that the team is facing so if i'm making decisions on friday those decisions will be informed and will hit the right problem where that problem needs to be addressed so and then of course i also look at my shareholders so i also every month i have one on one with uh, all my uh, major shareholders just okay. getting to share with them what's happening and then also them getting to share with me what's on their mind and that's outside of a board meeting so so this is just like stakeholder engagement just one on one and then of course i have time also for government i deal with a lot of regulatory stuff across the markets yeah. and then of course in all this i'm also thinking about strategy where are we going where do we need to be in the next 3 years 5 years 
and having a running team that's working on that. So that's, I would say, the big blocks of my time and how I get to spend my time. I mean, the, the real question is, you know, because you're starting your meetings at 7 a.m. is when do you wake, wake up? So normally I wake up at about uh, 5.30. Then I, I do like uh, a 45-minute jog. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you about the, the morning routine. You know, this is a typical question you'd, you'd ask somebody, you know, at the level of, uh, of CEO and managing companies uh, like these. So you have your morning, morning routine. Exercising is a big deal as well from what, I'm, what uh, I understand. Yeah, because the thing is that what I find is if I'm going to start my day and be effective, I need to be crisp. So, yeah. and what I like is uh, running, either listening to an audiobook or uh, listening to my favorite music kind of just gets me in the right frame of mind getting to start the day. No, for sure. And you mentioned earlier, you, you were talking uh, on a regular basis to your shareholders. And so relatedly, you raised, well, the company raised uh, last year $30 million from a round led by uh, Goldman Sachs and uh, other top investors. So from a day to another, you find yourself with this amount of money for, for the company. How do you adapt as a CEO to this new phase? And, and how do you inspire your teams to move to the next level? So the thing is that, I mean, we just celebrated for a day. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now we need to change this. We need to change this. So I think the key thing is that it's really focusing the whole team to then say, forget about all that. That, that for us is uh, because when you raise capital, it's, uh, yes, it's a great milestone, but what it then means is that now you raise that capital on the promise of results that you deliver in the future. So the question is, are you living to that promise? Mm. Because then if you're living to that promise, it then allows you then to raise more capital to even drive further growth. So for me, raising capital, yes, it's, it's important that now the company is well-funded, but we need to constantly feel the pressure to deliver results. That everybody is thinking about what do I need to deliver today? Yeah. And well, relatedly, uh, Peter, is the, the current crisis situation. And, and I assume companies like you need you know, to, to think even more about making sure that they uh, deli deliver on their results. So how has COVID-19 impacted the business in the past months and the sector more generally? I think the key thing for us is basically Kenya reported it. No, basically, I mean, factually, Kenya reported its first, first case on the 13th of March. And basically from the 26th, the country started shutting down and uh, April was uh, first month where, you know, we really, really got hit by COVID. And this was mainly due to restricted movement. And during that month, one of the things that I sat down was to then think of it from the perspective of, we're dealing with food and it's still a significant market out there. Of course, our existing operations will be impacted. And actually the month of April was a month where we actually declined. We had a slight decline in our revenue. Within two weeks, we had developed a new framework of how we were going to operate in this COVID environment. Mm. And I'm happy to note that as of this month, we basically doubled our business since April. So, so and the key thing is that it's, and it's from four things that we focused on. The first thing was then to then say that, look, our customers 
will continue facing strain due to this uh, COVID environment. So how do we then give them products that allow them to, su to survive through this period? How do we change our business to serve our customer? To actually focus relentlessly on customer market fit. So that was the first one. The second one is you have all these manufacturers, you have all these farmers, and they're struggling because now of all these changes, they don't know whether their supply chains will be disrupted, they will be able to sell the product that we're selling previously into their customer base. And what we said is that we want to be viewed as a preferred partner to that whole ecosystem. And, and we then focused our technology and the solutions that we offered, and we opened it up to this whole ecosystem. And then the third piece was to then say that, look, we need to give the retailers exceptional service, which means that when they order from us, if we say we will deliver in 12 hours, let it be 12 hours, mm. and we started measuring ourselves relentlessly on, variable, on KPIs like on time in full, when did I say I was going to deliver and when did I deliver? And right now, our on time in full score is at about 97%. So essentially, customer experience first. If we give them the market fit, then we have to deliver against the experience. And then, of course, as all this changes, how do we then start leveraging skill and offering that as a benefit to our, to our existing players? So, and those are the four things that we've relentlessly focused on and uh, they've borne fruit for us. So I would say that, yes, it's been a tough journey in a lot of long hours that we've had to put in, but it's allowed us to continue growing. In a sense, it's making the company even more resilient than before. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So now looking ahead and on a more positive note, what grand plans do you have for the future of the company? Two, two ways in which we're looking at growth. Growth across categories, that's definitely going to continue. And uh, we will look at more and more retail categories that we can continue participating in, including uh, servicing the hospitality channel. So again, there's going to be that lens of growth that we wear around the category lens. And uh, I mean, right now, for example, we're launching products in personal care. We're launching products in home, home care. And we'll continue expanding that. And then, of course, there's a geographical lens in terms of growth. And when I look at the geographical lens in Kenya, we essentially have started to expand across uh, different cities. By February of next year, 1st of February, we will launch our ninth city in okay. Kenya, which will be a significant milestone for us. So again, very, very uh, rapid expansion across the country. And of course, uh, immediately after that, we will then um, look at launching in our first uh, international city. And in the past, I had shared that uh, we were looking at uh, West Africa. Yep. And right now, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to say that, you know, those plans are back on track after COVID, not after COVID, but I mean, we're at the tail end yeah. of, uh, of the easing of restrictions of movement of COVID in, on the continent. So that should get us, again, thinking about uh, expansion across the continent. So again, being very, very positive about that. And, uh, and I think net-net, again, as I, as I mentioned before, the opportunity that you see in Kenya has been played out across the continent. And, and I've had the opportunity of uh, working with uh, Coca-Cola for six years. 
I was uh, the, the head of uh, the business. I was the general manager of a business on the East Coast of Africa. So led about six countries on the East Coast. And at the tail end of my career, I was president for Western Central Africa. So I was based out in Lagos, Nigeria, and I managed 33 countries out of, uh, out of Nigeria. So I have a fairly good understanding of the African yeah. continent. And right now, looking at everything, I think the West African piece of, of the continent uh, looks very, very attractive based on what it is that we're doing in Kenya. Well, these are, you know, very exciting plans, Peter. So um, I just want to finish with a few final words uh, from you. Is there a book or two that influenced your way of managing and leading or even your life philosophy that you would recommend? For entrepreneurs, the one book that really comes to mind is Shoe Dog, which is an autobiography of uh, Phil Knight, the founder of Nike. And... And for me, the, the reason why this was like a, a very, very inspirational book was because it, it talks about resilience. It talks about a vision. It talks about staying true to the vision, even in the midst of insurmountable challenges or seemingly insurmountable challenges. So, and when you put all that together, I think for me, that was one book that was a really, really true inspiration. And of course, then there will be a multiple of books that talk about different, different uh, business models, the different, different ways to, to look at uh, technology and implementation of technology. And I think for me, that was more or less incremental knowledge to, from where I was sitting. Yeah. But I would say that the pivotal book for me was, was, was Shudo because the journey of entrepreneurship is a, is a, is a lonely journey. We might sit here and talk about, you know, all the great things that have happened, but within that journey was some dark days, some days that were filled with uncertainty, some days that were filled with self-doubt, yeah. you know, some days that were filled with just so much, so many unanswered questions. And the thing is that, you know, you continue taking small risks, experimenting with different things, and then finding ways in which maybe you'd solve the problem. And that subtotal of those small decisions then led to the results that one can then come out and say, hey, by the way, look at what it is that we achieved. But it's not an easy journey and it will never get easy even as you move along. Yeah, it's a, it's a long road between, uh, you know, the beginnings and nobody hears about the beginnings to uh, the nice story on the, on the glossy magazine. So, Definitely. you know, uh, I'll finish with a uh, uh, last uh, question uh, uh, for you, what would you tell young people as they jump into similar journeys in Africa? And what does it really take to be successful? First thing is that from an ecosystem standpoint, there's, there's never been a greater time to be an entrepreneur on the continent because we have big problems that require solutions. And those solutions can only be provided through technology. Whether you're talking about food, with what Twiga is doing, whether you're talking about healthcare, whether you're talking about education or transportation. So very, very exciting ecosystem. The two big challenges I would then say is that uh, first is to think about ways in which one can access seed capital. We're, I'm trying to figure out ways in which I can help the ecosystem, uh, provide, uh, provide uh, assistance to upcoming entrepreneurs access seed capital because I think that's a big barrier. But the second thing is uh, seek mentorship. You know, value in those who've walked that journey before. 
there is value in listening to professionals who've also been successful in their field. Because then what it does is that it stops you from repeating mistakes or learning from the journeys of others. You will walk through your own journey, but I find mentorship so invaluable. And even today, I seek mentorship. For example, you know, I, I had a mentorship session with, a, with an ex-Amazon uh, executive, senior vice president, like uh, two weeks ago. Interesting. And from all this, I learn a lot. So always seek knowledge from others who've walked that journey before you. Because what you're doing, yes, is unique, but it's not the first time it's being done in the world. Yeah, I mean, mentorship, I think, is hugely underestimated. So this is a, a great piece of advice, uh, Peter. And that was a fantastic conversation. Thanks again uh, for being with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. And to the audience uh, listening, if you want to learn more about Twiga Foods, visit twiga.com. That's T-W-I-G-A dot com. Thanks for listening. And until next time. <laughs>